This morning we're going to go to the Word. The Lord has continued to have us in the book of Revelation. So uh, what I'd like to do before we go to the book of Revelation is just pray. Because the Lord has been doing awesome and amazing things uh, in my life, in your lives, in our church, and in our community. Uh, last week we witnessed four baptisms in our church. And it, I mean, it's just a miracle to watch the Lord is working in people's lives. But sometimes you kind of get into the season of the spring. And I don't know about you, but sometimes, even though there's special things going on, and even though you've got a Monday, Thursday service, and a sunrise service, and you've got an Easter service, and you've got a revival that's coming up, and you've, you've had all those things, you're going through the spring, and you're just plugging through the calendar. And you can just kind of go through, like, this is what we do every spring. This is what we do. And yet, you kind of need to step back for a moment to say, this is amazing. Look what's happening. Look what God is doing. And I don't know about you, it's easy for me just to kind of go autopilot sometimes. And I just need to pray right now. The Lord gives me a, a, a fresh mind to, to the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of Jesus, that I'm, I'm captured by him again. That in the midst of my preaching, that it wouldn't just be another Sunday preaching. That in the midst of us being a church, it wouldn't just be a, another, another week at church. That there just wouldn't be another Easter season, but that today we would be confronted by Jesus, that we'd be enraptured with how awesome He is, and that we'd be stricken in our sin with how awful we've been, and that we'd be caught up in knowing that we have been forgiven, how awesome that is. So, can we go to prayer? I need that this morning. I need, I need freshness. I need the gospel to be true. And I need not to be churchy. I need to be a faithful preacher. And we all to be listeners. So, please would you pray with me this morning. Father, you are awesome, you are glorious, you are all-powerful, all-merciful, all-gracious, and it's so easy for all that to escape us in the midst of all of our doing and even our going to church and the functions and the schedules and the revivals and everything. It's, it's easy to lose sight of just who you are and how awesome you are and what you've done. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would arrest us this morning. We pray that as we come to your scripture, that it would remind us just how awesome you are. We pray, Lord, that this wouldn't be just another sermon. And I pray, Lord, that this wouldn't be me just doing a job. Lord, we pray that you'd be using these next few moments to change us and to change our lives. That if we haven't in any way relaxed, if we've in any way become lazy, if we are uh, apathetic, if we're in love with the world, if we've gotten caught up in something else that's not Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would capture our minds and our hearts. I pray that you take over my mind and my heart and my lips at this moment, Lord, that you might have your gospel spoken out loud and received by us, Lord, that we would continue to see you for all that you are. You are awesome. So bless our time in the Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 7. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. We put some new ones out today. I know we got more. And I know more money's coming in to buy Bibles. And I just love it because the Word of God needs to go out. From the beginning of time, the Word of God has been what the battle is over. The serpent came to Adam and Eve. He said to Eve, is that what God really said? If you flip to the end of Revelation, when Jesus comes in on his, on his white horse to slay his enemies and to bring home his family, it says that his name is the Word of God. The Word of God is doing battle against Satan, the world, and all that's evil. 
And so from beginning to end, it's about the Word of God. So we want to make sure that we all have the Word of God. It's all about this. This is the truth. And it tells us what the actual situation is because as we go out into the world and as we go on in life and as we get caught up in all the other things, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that it's about the Word of God and the truth. And then we go and we do battle in the world and everybody's arguing right now about what is the truth. How do you run a government? How do you do foreign policy? What's the best way to have a small business? What's the best way to pay for insurance? What's the best way to raise your kids? What are the best jokes to have at Hee Haw? Now, that one made it be negotiable. But everybody's, what is the truth? The truth is right in your hand. The Lord has given us the truth. So we want to make sure everybody has the scripture, especially as we're going through a book like this, where it just takes a lot of chewing. And in this chapter, we're going to go to a, a, a section that, you know, there's a lot still to chew on, lots to say, you know, we're not quite sure, but the Lord has given us some evidence as to what it, it does mean. So we're going to look at those things. We have seen now, I have six of seven seals have been broken from the scroll. Jesus Christ was the one who is worthy as the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, to break those seals as each one of them were broken. A different set of circumstances played out, some of them being some great tribulation. And so now there's been a pause after the sixth seal. And John in chapter 7 says this, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So at this point, John turns, he sees something new. He sees that there's four angels at the four corners of the earth. That's just saying that they're, they're at the extremities, at the, at the edges. And they're holding back the winds of the earth that might come upon the earth to bring further tribulation and judgment. Okay? And so there, that's being held back by these four angels. It says then in verse 2, I saw another angel standing, ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So there's four angels. They're coming to harm the earth and the sea. And it said, Don't go and harm that until first we have gone out and sealed upon the foreheads the servants of God. That we have marked them with the mark of God. Don't go and do this until we know who are His. Now, this has happened previously in the Scripture. I want to bring up a portion of Scripture that's out of Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel had a similar vision back in that day. I want to read what happens here because I think it applies. Because the question is, well, if the servants of God have a seal on their forehead before that judgment comes, I want to make sure I'm one with the seal in my head, right? And so in Ezekiel, something similar happened in chapter 9. One is given a, a, a case that has a marking instrument who will go out and mark. And it says this, The Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, young, uh, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders 
who were before the house. So in Ezekiel, Ezekiel receives this vision of one who would go out into the city and mark on the foreheads those who are set apart, who are to be spared. But did you notice the mark of those who would be taken, those who are his? There was something interesting about, in Ezekiel, those who were with God. And that was, when they looked upon the abominations of what were going on in the city, when they looked upon the sin that was present in their midst, it says that they sighed and they groaned. You see, there's something that happens within the people of God when he's coming. He's changed somebody to get their eyes on him and to be forgiven. He, something happens within a person that, that they look at sin and say, oh, that's an abomination. That doesn't look like God. That doesn't look like his holiness. That doesn't look like goodness. That looks like evil. And so the response within somebody who is on the Lord's side is this groaning and this sighing that happens. You can be sure that those who look at sin and say there's something wrong with that, I can't participate in it, I can't glorify it, I can't cheer it, I can't even just ignore it, it causes something within me to happen to where I sigh and I grow, there's something wrong with it. That what happens within you isn't something that you brought there, but God has made it possible for you to see that there's a, there's a distinction between him and, and that which is sinful. Okay? It's not you being able to judge for yourself. It's not you who's brought about that. Because it's easy to look at them and say, well, that person is just a prude. Right? That person just doesn't want to have fun. That person is just too... No, that person is recognizing that that isn't of God. That it's not in line with his character. It's not in line with his person. And so those in Israel who sighed and groaned over sin, they were going to be marked because they were with God. And then the destroyers would go out and would destroy all those who didn't have a mark. So I'm of the opinion, you want the mark. You want God's mark on your head because when he comes to bring his judgment, harm will come upon those who are not marked with the mark of God. In Revelation, it's the same thing. It says, before the four winds come to bring upon that judgment on the earth to harm earth and sea, go out and seal on the foreheads those who are God's people. That way, when harm comes, it will not come and destroy those who are with God. And so, who are those people? Who are the ones that have the mark of God? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who has done something in the heart of people. He changes you. To where you say, this doesn't look like Jesus. This thing in my life doesn't look like Jesus. One of the great marks of being an actual true believer is when the Lord comes to you and says, hey, this in your life, that's not of me. That you would grieve and you would groan and you would sigh. And say, oh, I'm a sinner. That's a good mark. When the word of God goes out on a Sunday morning, one of the greatest things that can happen in the church isn't that everybody is smiley and laughing and rejoicing. One of the greatest marks of the people of God is that when they hear that they are sinners, that stuff in their life isn't of him and they have sinned against their God, that they would groan and they would mourn and they would cry. That they would shake their heads and they would desire to sit in ashes and sackcloth and say, we are a sinful people. That is a good mark. 
Now, it's not the same as people who say, well, I recognize I did something wrong. I just don't want to get in trouble. You know, that's different. You know, if my kids get in trouble, they know they did something wrong, and they come, they come towards Dad because I said, you come here. And there's different ways in which they come. Sometimes they'll come here, and you know what they got on their face? A smirk. And that's when Dad gets mad. How often is it that God comes with us and says, hey, you're a sinner, you've done something sinful. We come at him and we're smirking. <laughs> yeah, but I got the grace of Jesus. I said my prayer at the altar. I've prayed for forgiveness. I've gone to church. I've sang in the choir. I went to Hee Haw and donated even more money than the ticket price. And so we smirk at God. God's not interested in smirks. He's interested in people who say, I have sinned. Let me repent. Let me weep. Over my sin, that is a mark of a person who is with God. And so the best response that can come from the people of God is to repent. Say, I am so sorry. When a child comes to their father and doesn't have a smirk, but they recognize what I have done is wrong. I've either wronged my brother or my sister. I have wronged my parent. I've wronged the world. I've wronged God, and I'm sorry for my sin. I deserve the punishment. That is a good mark of a person who understands sin. And so in Revelation, it says, go and put the seal of God on the foreheads of those who would be set apart for God, those who are in Christ, who have had their sins forgiven. And it, it gives here in verse 4 a description of who those are, a number. It says, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. How many of you are from one of those tribes? I'm not either. But something else is in play here. Something else is going on with God giving these numbers and to give so in a very symbolic way. Because throughout the scriptures, what was told is God has a people. He has a community of people that he has chosen and brought out from the world. And those are his people. He would count them, have them tally. Those are my people. But when Christ came and forgave people, he forgave not only Jews, but also Gentiles. He said, those who have been forgiven by my, by my uh, son's blood are included in the promises that were given to Abraham. Those are my people. That is the spiritual Israel. Amen. And so he says here, there's 144,000. There's 12,000 from each of those tribes. What is that talking about then? It's talking about the completeness of, of the number of God's people. The completeness of the number of God's people. First of all, it keeps using 12. 12 was a number that was used oftentimes and understood to be one of completeness. You have 12 types of Israel. You have 12 disciples. You have 12. And so 12 is often used by that. But you see the redundancy in the marking that's happened here. Not only are there 12 tribes, it's 12,000 from each tribe. And then the 12,000 times 12 is 144,000, showing the completeness of the number of God's people. You see, Jesus 
knows the number of his people. He knows whom he will save. He knows whom he is going to redeem. He's waiting for that number to be completed. And I believe at the time that that number is made complete, when that last person comes into the kingdom of God and that number is complete, that's the day he's coming. And so the 144,000 is given here because it represents the complete number of those whom Jesus will save. Is it just 144,000 people? I don't believe so. I believe he's talking about the completeness of the number of those whom he will save. Now, the complete number is important, right? I love to play basketball, all right? The other night, I'm going to tell on this person, but I'm going to use him. I drove by here almost midnight one night, and I saw Parker Wood out there shooting hoops, right? Honked at him a couple times, I think, but there he was out there. I know he knows basketball. Parker Wood, I want you to tell me the completeness of the number of basketball players from a team that can be on the court at one time. How many? Five, and it wasn't just because I was going like this. Five. He got that. Five is the complete number of players of your team that you can have on the floor at one time. Okay? Now I'm going to ask Jude up here. Jude, what is the number of people in our family? Five. We got five people in our family. All right? Anybody know the number of people that can fit out in the fellowship hall? All right. See, that number, we don't know. We can know how many basketball players. We can know how many people in the Hudson family. But that number, we don't even know. But the Lord knows the number of the people. Okay? If you go out on the basketball court and you only got four people, you recognize that's not the completeness of the number of the people that are supposed to be on the floor. If we get in the car after church and we're going home and we've only got four people in the car, we're in trouble. We've got six or seven people. We've probably got some of the Johnson clan in our there. We, we just filled up. But the Lord has his number. We don't know what that number is. He's representing it by 144. We say, well, how can you just go choosing a number here and saying that it's symbolic? Pastor, 144,000. Some people believe that it's literally 144,000 people will only make it in. I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that it's just talking about a literal 144,000 People. And the reason I believe that is if you keep reading within the context of what's going on here, it says in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here, he sees a symbolic picture of this is the completeness of the number of people that are God's. He will save them. And then in the next moment, he turns and he sees a multitude that is beyond number. He can't even count them. They come from every tribe, tongue, nation, and they're just standing there praising God. And they say, salvation belongs to him, to our God and to the Lamb. And so both of these things are being used at the same time. In the same way we see Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah, how can those two things be? They're both a description of Jesus. In the same way we see the completeness of the number of God and 144,000, 12, 12, 12, all that. But also in that same moment he turns and says there's a multitude that we can't even count, but the Lord knows. They're there. That's the people of God. So both of those things are being represented right here. 
Now, I know you believe in that number. You know why? Because there's a song that goes like this. Oh, when the saints go marching in, oh, when the saints go marching in, oh, how I want to be in that number when the saints go marching That's right. See, we sing about that number all the time. And the Lord knows what that number is. And he is waiting and working and he's giving his gospel, maybe even here today, trying to get more people into the number that he knows that he's going to complete. And then he's going to bring those people home. They will march like saints go in because they are part of that number. They've been sealed with the seal of God in their forehead and they will not be harmed by death and eternal judgment and wrath of God because they've been sealed with the seal of God covered in the blood of Jesus. You see, salvation belongs to him, they said, and he will give it to whom he pleases. He will give it to whom he pleases. Now, the world likes to pretend to be all friendly. People pretend to think, well, we're lovers, not fighters. Okay? So if you don't got that seal, you could probably just march on in and figure it out. It, it'll all work out in the end. That's not the way it goes. Amen. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He has done it one particular way. That was by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross, to raise from the grave, to go give that good news to people who might be changed in their hearts, who might groan and mourn over their sin and plead forgiveness for them, the one who died for their sin. And he washes them in his blood and he receives them into his number, into his family van, into and onto his team in the complete number. And those saints will march in. Now, if you go through life and say, there's no sin. I... I, I'm not sighing. I'm not groaning over sin. That is a danger sign. It's a danger sign saying you might have a mark of Jesus on you. You might have thought you had everything checked off, but there's one thing that needs to be done. Get on your knees and repent. Let Jesus change you. Because right now, most of what we see is this. People think they can have it both ways. Let me be comforted by Christ when it's convenient to be comforted by Him. And then all the rest of the time, I'll go be comforted by the world. You see, that's the same as me saying, when it's convenient, let me be comforted by my wife. But when I can't have her, let me be comforted by a harlot. See, Katie wouldn't have that. That's not the way our family works, thank God. And it doesn't work with Jesus either. You're with Jesus or you're not with Jesus. You have that mark or you don't have that mark. You're saved or you're not saved. You're in the number or you're not in that number. My prayer is that we all here are of that number. And my prayer is that if we say we are a part of that number, that we will groan and sigh over the sin of not the community of Four Oaks, of this church, of this person. You see, the prayer request went out that throughout 
this local community on Sunday mornings, they're beginning to lock the doors because criminals are coming in, correct? We should have locked those doors because about 150 criminals came in this morning. If you don't believe that, then you don't know the Bible. The fact is that each and every one of us, in some way, in some form this week, we're criminals against Jesus. We're good at sinning. It could be just by an all-out, awful, wretched sin action that all of us would be like, oh yeah, that's sin. That's sin. Of course Danny sinned. He did that. That's sin. And then there's other stuff. We might just slip it into a joke. Like, <laughs> that's sin. That's not really criminal. Who gets to say? The judge does. The judge sits here this morning. He knows exactly where your heart is. And I guarantee you, whether it's just by an outright awful deed or whether us just being lazy and apathetic, we are criminals. We all should have been locked out of the house of God on account of what we've done this week, on what account that's gone on in my heart and in my head and in my actions. A sinner. Thanks be to God. That he who at the beginning of the book said, I hold the keys, has unlocked the door into his sanctuary and has allowed people to come in. Not that they might just be religious, not that they might just get their Sunday thing off their checklist, not that they might just come in and feel like they belong within a group, but that they might come and hear the gospel and be saved. That they might come and say, I've been a sinner, I need forgiveness. That they might come in and say, Lord, remind me that I'm in that number. Remind me of what you've done for me. We are criminals. It's interesting in this passage, after showing the completeness of the number of those who are saved, and he turns and he sees the multitude beyond number. Same people, just described a different way. He sees the multitude, and they're rejoicing at what's happened. Why? Because they understood they were all criminals. But then they stand there looking upon the one who saved them, told them the truth that they were sinners and criminals, and then told them the truth about how to get in through the blood of Jesus Christ they have overcome. So one of the cool things that happens in that passage, I don't know if you noticed that, but as they stood there, not only were they singing, but they they were taking palm branches and they were waving them. And what I love about the Lord is, I I don't plan out years or months or even a whole lot of weeks in advance what passages are going to land on what Sundays. But I've I've just always found it miraculous the way the Lord times up the sermons that I give with the calendar year. I never, ever planned that on the day in Revelation that we would read about the number of God's people praising the Lamb of God and salvation that has come from Him, standing in heaven, waving palm branches, that that sermon would be given on what's called Palm Sunday. I never planned that out. Jesus did. And we're told in the Scripture that on Palm Sunday, on that Sunday in Jerusalem when they were preparing for the Passover feast, that there were people who were inviting in the visitors to Jerusalem. And as Jesus came, he came in riding on a donkey. He didn't come in on a war horse. He came in on a dumb donkey. Now, I've been around here on the farm long enough to know that the donkey's not the smartest. It's useful. Here comes Jesus, the humble king, 
And as he rides into Jerusalem, there are people waving palm branches, putting their coats on the road to, 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 to pave the way for Jesus to come in to the city. And there presented to the city was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God. On the day that that entry happened, which is called the triumphal entry, on Palm Sunday, that week within that calendar week would have been the exact same day that Israel would have chosen a lamb and they would have put it in the middle of the city there at the temple. It would have been a perfect lamb without blemish or spots and would have been there to have been chosen that Sunday and put on display and everybody could go and look at that lamb and make sure it was spotless, make sure it was ready for the upcoming Passover when it would be slaughtered. And on that very day, when that lamb would be presented symbolically, on that very day, the reality of the lamb came riding in on a donkey. And he presented himself. And he presented himself not as this great and grand and glorious king that he really truly is. He presented himself as the humble king who is coming to serve his constituents by dying for them. And then we head on into Easter week and we commemorate that on Thursday. But when that lamb was taken off that colt and he was slaughtered on a cross and he bled out and by that blood, he takes and he washes it over his people, washes it over those who confess their sins, and he forgives them and washes them. So that one day the completeness of that number of saved people can stand there in that day and say, salvation belongs to God. Glory be to him, because if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. We have a limited amount of time left until that number is complete and then it's, it's done. My prayer is this. That each and every one of us would be marked by that mark. That He'd begin to work in your life. If you haven't recognized that you are a criminal against God, then pray that God shows you that you are, because it's the truth. Amen. And at the moment that He shows you that you're a criminal, ask Him. Ask Him to cause you to fall on your knees and repent of your sin. Say, Lord, please forgive me. You know what happens in that moment? The moment you ask forgiveness, He washes you clean, He marks you as His, and He counts you in that number. And when the saints go marching in, you march. You get to march. Father, we thank You None of us could have devised a plan that would make it possible for us to be saved. And yet by your perfect plan, you sent your perfect son to die a perfect death at the hands of murderers and sinners. That by his blood, we who are murderers and sinners would be saved. And so we're thankful that you have made it possible for us to be saved. 
that You do convict us of our sin, that You ask us not to come smirking, but You ask us to come crying and weeping for what we've done. We pray now, Lord, that if we have been dismissive of sin, that You would show us the reality of sin. That's how wicked we are. Because until we understand the the lowliness of sin, we will never understand the amazingness of Your grace. The awesomeness of Your forgiveness. And how desperate we are for that. And I pray that there, there are any not here this mo- or any here this morning who are not a part of that number, Lord, that you would continue to work in their hearts. We pray that you'd help us to love them and teach them towards the kingdom. And I pray that you cause them to, to repent. And Lord, as we go from here, we know that we live in a, a fractured world that, that is arguing and going to war and bullying one another, all the while trying to gloss it over with dead works. And so we pray that we would go out with the good news of Jesus this week. That we'd go out with the news that He died and resurrected, and He did that for them. He did it for us. Pray He'd help us to go with the Gospel that many more in our community who are part of that number will come into that number soon, Lord. We thank you for continuing to reveal to us how how good you are. We pray these things in Christ's name.